Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? And uh, I know you're excited about this guest, especially uh, the survey. Yeah, absolutely. I am doing great. By the way, Neil, thank you so much. Don Damacy is with us today, and he is Vice President of Marketing, I believe is your title, at Bradley. And Bradley is a company that everybody probably knows. It's been around for over 100 years, family-owned business, and uh, big on all things related to cleanliness, washing hands, and um, sinks, and fixtures, and all kinds of things that they do all over. Great company. Uh, And there was just a study done, and that's why we have John here today. John, thank you for being here, and welcome to the show. No, thanks for uh, having me. It's uh... Uh, great to talk about. Obviously, it's uh, it's a subject near and dear to my heart and uh, one that's, uh, like you said, kept us in business for over 100 years. Yeah, absolutely. What was the most? OK, so with COVID, things changed, right? Like people beforehand were washing hands, you know, sometimes or whatever. But it had to be OK for business, at least eventually with COVID uh, for you guys. Um, so what was the most surprising thing to you about the survey? Well, uh, I think probably the most surprising thing was that uh, we definitely saw a downturn from COVID, from the COVID spike where 90% of the people were making a very conscious effort to wash their hands more. It's down to 74%, but it's really uh, become really uh put into the collective of everyone, especially people who are traveling, where uh, where it, it looked like it was going to continue to the usage, uh, hand washing was going to continue to decline, uh, especially for travelers. That is definitely not the case uh, because 77% of people make a point while they're traveling uh, to stop to wash their hands. Uh, even if they don't need to stop for something else, they're going to stop uh, to wash their hands, and 67% even make it a point to wash their hands more before a trip to avoid potentially getting sick and wrecking their trip. So uh, that those were definitely not anywhere close to the numbers that we had. Uh, we've been doing this for 15 years. It's a 15-year anniversary of this, and uh, we started doing it, uh, you can remember back uh, way back when in 2009, with uh, H1N1 and the bird flu and you know right. things like that that came. And at that point, when we started doing the survey, only about 45% of people uh, really diligently washed their hands more, you know, if flu was out or something like that. COVID, it goes up to 90%, you know, and everyone's hands are raw from washing them so much and we're out of soap and we need sanitizer. I'll take the soap and the sanitizer and all those things. So uh, as it's gone down, we thought, well, we really hope it doesn't get back down to that 45% again. Uh, And really, I think it's stabilized now at that, you know, in the 70s and especially with travelers. We see that that is a very big thing and, uh, you know, really looks like it is not going to be going away now because they, they really have a much higher conscience of germs overall and being more cognizant of germs in a public bathroom. You know, so before all this, people weren't washing their hands, were they, John? Yeah, like, under 50%. 
uh, uh, where it was just uh, at, in a in a public bathroom area. Uh, very very low numbers were washing their hands, and it was uh, re really COVID brought a lot more attention to it overall. So that if there is any type of illness, sickness that is you know put in the media, uh, it is a very heightened awareness, and now people listen versus oh yeah that always happens you know it's happened for decades it'll it'll be fine it'll just go away. Yeah, you know what what I found interesting in reading the study was uh, there's a little bit of judgment going on. People not happy and thinking negatively of people that are leaving public restrooms without washing their hands. Yeah, it's uh, it is very uh, not only are people more cognizant of you know how they're doing it themselves, they definitely are monitoring a lot more people uh, as they're leaving leaving bathrooms, 70% uh, see others leave bathrooms without washing their hands. Uh, I, I, I can't even remember how low that number was uh, early because people just weren't paying attention, didn't care. Now they truly care. So that's a very big thing. 79% uh, of men see that uh, very frequently, 59% of women and uh, sadly, being a guy, it's it's brutal. It's horrible to say this, but in the 15 years that we've done the survey, guys always wash less than women. So it's not a shock that more guys see guys walking out of the bathroom without washing their hands. Right. And that's so it's definitely a, a gender thing. Now, do you think that because of the whole covid thing to the point now it's 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 a duty that they need to because it could just covid still can happen it's not going to be as you know deadly but you could be out three weeks from work and with this economy and stuff like that i guess that really is you, you could say you didn't wash your hands and it could be an ostracize somebody because they could cause someone else to get sick all right it's again there's a lot more uh people being cognizant of their own, their own habits, the habits of people around them. Uh, you know, like we said, a lot of the survey results that we we're showing, uh, there's a heightened awareness. Hey, that guy might be on my plane. You know, we're walking out of the bathroom together. He might be on my plane next to me. He might be uh, in the meeting uh, that we're both going into at the hotel conference center. Uh, things like that. So uh, again, I think it's just a lot more cognizant. Uh, you, you said that you had a education background. Uh, obviously, kids washing their hands uh, has always been a challenge. And we ask about that in the survey as well, too. And uh, it's always, uh, we've been asking this question, I think for two or three years now, uh, only one in four parents believe their kids when they say, when their kids tell them that they wash their hands. So only one in four. When we ask them why, there's 3% of the parents said that they lied consistently to their parents about their own hand washing. So why would I believe my own kids? Oh, man. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's, uh, it is absolutely hysterical when we saw that the first year. And then, you know, when we see the same types of things, especially the fathers, uh, those numbers are even higher for dads. You know, yes, I lied to my parents constantly about washing my hands. So yes, my, I'm sure my kids are lying to me too. John, I'm not going to put you on the spot, 
I know that you uh, sang at Stillwater, and so I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you whether or not you washed your hands and lied to your parents or how that worked out for you. But, um, you know, what's interesting to me is that hand washing has always been important. It has always been important, and it took COVID to shake things up. I saw the same thing happen uh, 13 years ago in Haiti when cholera was introduced to oh. Haiti. The big thing was wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And that's what brought down the, the cholera numbers and uh, and deaths, of course. And COVID certainly was helped by hand washing. And it's always interesting, though, too, to see how people get out of a public bathroom. I don't know about men, but women don't want to touch the handle. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is absolutely. Uh, I think we've been asking questions about that probably for uh, easily 10 of the 15 years uh, because people started answering those and then we thought it'd be interesting questions to ask. But uh, yeah, 70% of Americans use paper towels to avoid contact with flushers. Uh, you know, they, they're not against dryers, but they want a paper towel in there because they don't want to touch anything. And there's still a lot of bathrooms, unfortunately, uh, that have the levered faucets, the push soap dispensers and things like that, uh, which uh, people do not want to use anymore in a public bathroom. So 46% uh, are foot flushers, uh, men and women. 34% uh, hover above toilet seats. They will not uh, uh, actually sit on a toilet seat. 29% uh, are butt bumper door openers, kind of like what you're alluding to. Uh, they will do anything to uh, open stall doors or doors of bathrooms as much as they can just by, you know, bumping into them. Uh, usually bathroom doors are pretty heavy duty, you know, the main door, but that's why stall doors take such a punishment sometimes because people are trying to open them with anything other than the latch, your hand, et cetera. So wow. uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty... Uh, it's not a shock why uh, things look pretty rough in some public bathrooms around the country. All right. So Kim has a final question for you, John, and it doesn't have to do with the survey. Go ahead, Kim. Yeah. So, John, um, a, a few years ago, I, I lost my husband and I questioned the meaning of love. And this is great for you with still waters and whatever. And so I, I investigated, I dedicated a year to figuring it out. And I did figure out the real meaning of love that is so different than what we're taught and whatever. And so I'm always curious uh, how people look at love and what they think of love. And with your job, love has got to be involved, John. I mean, because if you didn't care about people, then you wouldn't care about this. So I'm curious, what? how is it involved in your job? What does it mean to you? No, that's a, that is a great question. And, and we talk about this a lot. We obviously have sold uh, commercial plumbing products for a very long time but we don't see ourselves as a manufacturer of sinks and faucets and things like that. Uh, there is a very deep connection for making uh, the whole public bathroom area healthier, safer, uh, not transmitting of germs, uh, people not slipping on floors. Uh, there is a very deep dedication uh, uh, so many people at uh, Bradley and our parent company, Watts Water Technologies, uh, we are just trying to make uh, the whole environment, the whole experience of using water 
uh, more respectful, safe, healthy, hygienic, uh, for all the reasons that, that you said, so that people can live longer, they're healthier, and that's that's truly what drives us a, as a company. And it's very exciting. It's a wonderful mission to have. And at that same time, we're saving water, we're saving, uh, you know, saving energy. And that really is the motivation behind everything we do. That's that's how we that's how we love. Mm. Wow. Awesome. Great answer, John. Best place people can check out the survey and learn more about you. Where can they go? Yeah, www.bradleycorp.com. Uh, and we do have a specific spot on there just for the survey. Just uh, it's slash hand washing. Uh, you'll easily be able to find it. And we do a lot of uh, great things with it and get that out to a lot of people, businesses, uh, all you know, th throughout the country and uh, across the across the world. All right. Well, fantastic. That was the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Living a Legacy. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Eric Couch. Eric, how are you? And Happy New Year. And a great way Happy to Happy New, New Year, right? For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Today, we have, you know, it's cold outside. I don't know if anybody's been outside yet, but, you know, when it's cold, one of the things we always like to do is have you know, something warm in a bowl, right? Like some soup, some chicken soup. And, uh, you know, today we're going to take it an even step further because we're having chicken soup for the soul. Uh, author, famous author, Jack Canfield. And Jack, we're so excited to, to, to have you on the show today. And sure, you've written so many books. You've got, what, 66, like, bestsellers and international bestsellers and made such an impact all over the world. And along with Jack, uh, he's written, he's co-authored a book with Miriam Laundry. Miriam's an actual a Guinness World Record holder um, as a children's author. So, and they've got a book they just released. We're excited because it's got such an incredible message. And then the two just getting to know them as well. So Jack and Miriam, welcome to the show. Yes, welcome. Thank, Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Neil. Thank awesome. you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I really, again, was telling Miriam before the interview that I'm a former educator taught 10 years. So really, this speaks to me with kids, because that was a lot of the time I spent really working with kids in all different areas of life. And children's books are big, especially I have six kids as my own, Jack. So yeah. children's books are uh, definitely an important part of our lives, for sure. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So go ahead, Eric, with your first question. Well, you know, I would love to hear a little, um, a little backstory on how, how you two came to collaborate on this. Uh, you know, in a minute, we'll go into, I want to hear a little backstory on each of you, because uh, Jack, you know, a lot of people know who you are and, and would love to hear some of that. But first, let's just hear how you two came to collaborate. And, uh, and also with it, just tell us a little bit about the book, because the phrase I can is so powerful. I'll start by, I'll give you the context and I'll let Miriam end this story because she's really the last part of it. But what happened was I, I run live seminars. One was called Breakthrough to Success. And it was a week long program and basically teach people how to get from where you are to where you want to be. And one of the exercises we do in that program is called uh, the I Can't, I Won't Exercise. And we have people basically make a list of all, they talk to a partner. Like if I was talking to you, I'd say, 
I can't, uh, you know, fly an airplane. You might say I can't uh, walk on water. I might say I can't get my grandson to clean up his room when he visits. And you know, I can't lose five pounds. I can't stop smoking, whatever. Right. We go back and forth like that. And then we have him go and change that sentence to I won't. So I won't spend time with my grandson. I won't lose five pounds. I won't stop smoking. And you begin to realize right. it's not, you're not able to. It's just you're choosing not to. So Miriam was in the seminar and taking that, and she went through that exercise, had a huge impact on her. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to turn it over to her to finish the story. Yeah. Yes. So this takes me back to 2012. I was sitting at that seminar, um, Breakthrough to Success, it's called. And I mean, we were learning so many good things. I have four children. I had My youngest was just eight weeks old when I went to the seminar. And the whole time I was there was, I was thinking, this is so great. Where would my life be now if I would have learned this when I was younger? You know, all right. of these great principles that Jack was teaching. And that one exercise really stuck with me because I started thinking about all the times that I had said can't in my life, how that word can't had limited right. me from going for businesses and doing different things. So that stuck with me. And on the flight home, I needed to come home with something to tell my children. So I had to choose one thing. And for the first time, I kept thinking about that word can't. And for the first time it flipped. I thought I can, I am gonna go home and I'm gonna start this business. I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna teach my children the power mm -hmm. of can. So on that flight home, I wrote the first draft to I can believe in myself. And the idea was to get home and not just dump this information on the kids but to entertain them through a story. Yeah. That's why I can believe in myself started. And it's such yeah, an important story. thing. Yeah, Eric, it's such an important thing to use the word I can, right, Eric? Because right. if you have any type of negative thought, it ends up becoming reality in so many ways. And so many people just don't understand that. And I know Jack's taught that for years, but uh, especially uh, watching certain uh, movies, he's been in different things. But go ahead, Eric, with your next question. Yeah, so, you know, I agree Man, I agree a thousand percent, right? The difference between I can't versus I won't. Um, you know, I know about probably two years ago now, my wife came to me and we had, we had really, we've been married 20 years and we had really struggled for a season about five years ago. And, you know, it had been a couple of years into it and she probably two years ago, she came to me and she's like, you know, one of the main things that changed for her that really helped our marriage and our communication is, is she, she, I guess acknowledged it, but then she made the mental deal of going from, you know, I have to, to I get to, right. Which is similar to I can and I want, cause she's like, you know, I don't, I, you know, and for her, she'll say it. And she's like, I get to do the dishes, you know, I get to, you know, all the stuff that we have to do around the house that none of us really, none of us want to do laundry. It's like, Hey, do you want to do the laundry? No, I don't. You know, do you want to clean up? Do you want to do the dishes? You want to, not really. Will I? Yeah. But, but going from, you know, I get to serve you guys. I get to be married. I get to, and that's one thing that, and that's why I love today's segment, right? From, from the day our children were born, I've told them, I'm so glad I get to be your daddy, right? Mm -hmm. I love being your daddy. I'm so grateful for you. And telling them, you know, when they would play cops and robbers, I'm like, you're the good guy. And they're like, well, we want to do this. And, you know, you're the bad. I was like, no, no, no. You're all the good guys. The invisible person out there, they're the bad guy, but you, you're a good guy. And I always wanted to build that into them, just like you're talking about here, because it's so easy 
for us to forget um, that I can and I get to rather than I can't or I have to um, because that that shift. Uh, Jack, how did you how did you come to this conclusion? How did you have this uh, insight that that you've been able to share with the world? Well, I probably the, the 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 I can't part goes back to when I was a therapy client back in my probably early 30s. And I had a gestalt therapist who was really good. And yeah. he introduced me to this idea that your words are impacting your DNA. They're impacting right. your physical strength. Uh, one of the things we do in our trainings is we'll have people put their arm out like this. I'll push down on their arm muscle, test their strength. And I'll have them say, I can't do something like I can't play the violin, their arm goes weak. And I'll have them say, I can play the violin, their arm goes strong. Now, they may not have ever developed that talent, but the mere act of saying I can strengthens you and I can't weakens you. And so when I learned that and started applying it to my own life and I realized, wow, you know, how many things do we say I can't do? And we see it with kids all the time, you know, and now with COVID-19, it's so prominent. I can't see my grandparents. I can't go to school. I can't play with my friends. I can't go out and play soccer. You know, so there's a lot of can'ts that are there. Uh, I don't know if you know who W. Mitchell is. He's a good friend of mine who was burned over like 85% of his body or something. He was on a motorcycle and he went down and the gas tank started to leak and caught on fire and he burned up all over the place. And his total face is burned. He still has his hair because his helmet protected him from that. But he, his fingers fused. He, he doesn't have like fingers like you and I do. It would look more like a fist. And he said, I remember, I'll never forget this. He said, I had to sit there and say, there's a lot of things I can't do. Maybe 200 things. I can't play the piano. I can't play tennis. I can't throw a baseball. But I said, what can I do? And he made a list. I can speak. Right. I can still enjoy good wine. I can... Yeah. He actually learned to drive a car. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's climbed up mountains. He's, he's, he's a great uh, motivator. He can make love. You know, there's a lot of things he still can do. And he said, I decided to focus on the thousand things I could do rather than two or three right. things I couldn't do. And that's what made me successful. And I want to add one more thing. You talked about turning have-tos into get-tos. There's an even, I want to take it even a step higher. I have okay. a friend uh, who literally had to get a, um, lost his front tooth. And so he had to get a replacement. So he said, how can I turn this half to and a get to? And so what he did, he eventually took it out, but for four years, he had a gold tooth with a diamond in the middle, like, like a setting of diamond. (laughs) And he said, that was really fun. That got to be a little bit ridiculous after a while, because he was doing corporate trainings, but he started teaching everyone when you have to do something, how can you make it even more fun and make it into a get to? I used to work in Culver City, California and lived about mm, 10 minutes away. But I have to get on the 405 to drive north to get to where I live in, in Mar Vista. And the 405 has often been referred to as a parking lot. It's right. 12 lanes wide, six in both directions. And it's rush hour, you might be going five, 10 miles an hour. So I said, how can I turn this have to into a get to? And I turned it into every time I was driving home, I played a game. And the game was how many points could I get? And uh-huh. six lanes wide, if I get in the right lane and I'm really clever, I can get ahead. And every time I pass the car, I gave myself a point. And sometimes if you got in the right lane, you're passing five cars in a row, five right. points, 10 points, 15 points, stupid game. But I had fun. And then if it was not moving at all and it was total stop stuff, then it was right. how many times do I have to touch the brakes? Can I get home without ever having to hit the brake? <laughs> you leave too much room in front of you, then someone pulls in 
Right. You have to get the brakes. So you got to be paid. Every day I was having this game, which used to be a pain in the ass driving home, and then it turned into a game. So you can right. turn most have tos into get tos. That's Absolutely so true. And Miriam, how do you take again getting to Jack's seminar? What were you trying to improve or look for in your business and your life by choosing to go see Jack? Yeah. So, so at that time in 2012, 2012 changed my life. I have to say, you know, um, it started off with my son being born. And then the following day we lost my 17 year old niece to suicide. Mm -hmm. So, so that changed everything. And, um, and my husband actually suggested that I go to Jack Canfield's seminar. I was spiraling into my own dark hole. I was, you know, so many emotions, the grief and then the baby blues. I, I was in a dark place. So yeah. that's what got me there. And then that week, I just kept thinking about, you know, my niece and losing her. And what can I do to prevent that from happening? Like, what are the little nuggets that I can bring home and teach my kids and then teach other children? So I had never thought of writing a children's book before, but it was really just what can I do? And my books don't deal straight on, you know, we don't talk about suicide in yeah. children's books, but I, I really believe that by teaching them little bits, like, you know, to let go of the word can't, to believe that you can do things, to believe that tomorrow is a new day. And, and you know, that's all I was thinking about my niece. Yeah. Um, then that would help those children, right? Like mental health is is such a, that's really a pandemic. That's a huge pandemic, right? It is. So that's what got me there. And everything changed since attending that seminar in 2012 for me. Agree. And that's that definitely, we have those transformational moments, Eric. You talk about that in a lot of the shows, right, Eric? That you had your we transformation do. moment. Yeah. I mean, anywhere from, you know, some of them huge, like, you know, when we interviewed Rick Allen, right? So Rick's, Rick's the drummer for Def Leppard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which everybody's heard of and stuff, but the guy lost his arm in a car wreck in the eighties, you know, after they had made it huge, but they actually made it much and he became known as the God of thunder. Um, you know, uh, after he became, after he lost his arm. Right. So, so I can't play drums again. I mean, you, when you're a world renowned drummer, he, he became in the band when he was 14 years old on his 14th birthday. Right. So he wasn't like this full grown man who had a degree, he, he's just, but then he loses his arm and most people would say, I'll never drum again. I mean, you've got one arm and you're a drummer, right? Exactly. And, and, and then he just decides, no, I can. And now, you know, they work with wounded warriors and all these people with PTSD that have had a major trauma of learning that, you know, it's really just as Jack teaches every day. Right. And, and Jack and Miriam, you both are teaching right now to, to our children, but really their parents who are reading it to them as well of, no, you can't. Um, but then there's also little things, right? As, as Miriam, you referenced in, in uh, you know, there's so many different areas where, where, we, where we tell ourselves we can't do this. And Jack, you know, I can, I can do all this. But, you know, our, our very first interview back in, in March of last year was, was with actor uh, Patrick Warburton. And it was literally day one of the COVID lockdowns in California, like day one. He's like, we're in lockdown and uh, officially, but of course, families have been together because all the stuff that was going on. And, you know, there's so much of people just, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to keep my job. You remember, you know, we didn't have toilet paper. And, you know, that was like in the heat of no toilet paper. And it was so, you know, all of those things we could talk about. And, but what does Patrick say? He's like, man, I'm so grateful. 
you know, I've got three grown kids and they're at home and we go for walks and we play board games and we drink wine and, you know, cause they're out of college and stuff. And he was like, you know, it's, it's what we get rather than all the stuff that we can't control. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we've got so much going on in the economy politically and economically and all that, that, that there's a lot of fear, but the reality is we can't control any of that. What we can control is the way we communicate and the way we treat other people around us. Um, you know, that said, I would love to hear, Jack, I would love to hear some of the um, messages that you've received over the years on how this has impacted, you know, the, the Chicken Soup series and other books that you've written, you know, how it's impacted people. Well, every book I've ever written impacted people differently, depending yeah. on the topic of the book. But uh, the first book I ever wrote was 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom. It was a book for teachers about how to raise kids' self-esteem. Because my experience, uh, along with Neil, started out as being a teacher. And I taught in an all-Black high school in Chicago in the inner city in 1968, the year Martin Luther King was killed. So it was a pretty radical year there. And what I noticed kind of mid-first semester was my kids didn't believe in themselves. They didn't think they were as smart as white kids. Most of them had never been more than eight blocks away from their home. They had all kinds of negative self-image and self-concept. And so I became more interested in building their self-esteem than I was in teaching history. And as a result of that, I got the Teacher of the Year Award at the end of the year, which I was not expecting. I didn't even know there was such a thing because it was my first year of teaching. And um, But as a result of that, the teachers in the school started asking me to teach them what I was doing. And I had gone to a seminar with a man named W. Clement Stone, who was a friend of Norman, not Norman Peel, but um, um, Think and Grow Rich. Um, why is his name escaping me right now? Um, you know who I mean. Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill, thank you very much. I just had a brain freeze there. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich, was his good friend. And he taught me all these techniques I could do in the classroom to develop these kids' belief in themselves. So that was the beginning of it for me. So the first book I wrote was for parents and teachers. And then, uh, you know, I started training teachers, built a company around training teachers. And then a recession hit in 1993. And teachers, the schools were not hiring anybody. And so I had to shift my attention to doing public seminars, working in corporations. And that's when the chicken soup book started to happen. When people would say that story you told about the Girl Scout who sold 3000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies in one year, that story about the one legged guy who climbed Mount Everest a story about the kid with no arms and legs who climbed up Kilimanjaro, you know, and I'd say, uh, they're not in a book. And they'd say, well, they need to be. My daughter needs to read it. My staff needs to hear it, you know. So I'm coming home on a flight from Boston and I'm thinking, it's like the old V8 commercials where the guy slaps his head and says, I should have had a V8. And I'm thinking, I should put these stories in a book. So I, I gave myself the task to do two stories a week for a year and they'd come up with a hundred stories. And I did and met Mark Victor Hansen along the way. And we, collaborated and it was a great collaboration. And very quickly, we started getting letters from people. My sister who did our Teenage Soul book that was one of the sequels has, I think over 2000 letters, the kids that said I didn't commit suicide because of your book, because they felt inspired and empowered to live their life and go for their dreams. I remember a letter from a a, a 81 year old woman who said, I thought my life was over. All my friends had died, even my doctors had died. And she said, I thought my life was over. But then I read that one story about this guy who had traveled around the world. So I decided to do a round the world trip. And I now have more friends. I'm doing things I never did before. Uh, you know, so we, we would get letters. 
I literally just last year threw away 12 garbage bags full of letters saying how our books had changed people's lives because it just I had no room for them anymore. They were them in dresser drawers in my office. I had three dressers full of them. And it's like, I remember a story. We were walking through the lobby of a New York hotel after Mark and I had received a, a book award. And there was this girl who was uh, bald and she was obviously a cancer patient going through chemo or radiation. So we went over and just said hi, because I like to do that with kids. And we, she said, what are you doing here? I said, we just got this award. Well, what for? Chicken Soup and Soul. Oh my God, I read that story, those books every day. That's what keeps me from throwing up after chemo, you know? And, and so it was like, just knowing that these books were helping people, that's what kept us going and doing more and more and more and more and more. And as you indicated in the introduction, we now have over 250 Chicken Soup for the Soul books. They're in 50 languages around the world. There's over uh, half a billion books sold. And it's it's been a phenomenon, but I I could die tomorrow. I don't plan to. I plan to live to be a hundred at least. But I know my life's mattered. And Miriam's the same thing. She's written all these books for kids, uh, starting with uh, we we wrote a book together too called The Big Bad Bully, which is all about how the inner critic is the bully that's bullying you the most. And she wrote that based on one of her daughter's experiences. And, um, you know, her Guinness Book World Record, which you talked about, I'll let her talk about it, but she had like 103,000 people on, on, on uh, the internet at one point in time, all discussing her book. And, that's, and, and she got, that started, I think, at, at one of our trainings as well. You met the guy from a mall. Tell that story. It's really fascinating. Sure. Yeah, for sure. sure. I mean, for me, so much has started um, from learning Jack's teachings, right? The success principle is, is that book. But I was sitting, I'm one of the trainers for the Campfield group. And I was sitting at one of the, the trainings and Jack had us write our breakthrough goal. What's your, your big, big goal? And for me, I was, I wanted to empower children. I wrote down that I wanted to empower a hundred thousand children to believe in themselves. And then I set a date uh, within the year. I'll just say that when I wrote that, I don't know if you know this, Jack, as soon as I wrote that, I, I dropped the pen. I got so flustered because I thought, why would you ever think of a hundred thousand kids? Why didn't you just write a thousand kids? At the time I had just visited, started visiting schools. I didn't know how I was going to do that. But as Jack always does, he had us turn to the person on your left, share your goal, turn to the other person, share your goal. And nobody laughed. I started getting a little bit more confidence that I can do this. I could do that. So uh, probably a month later, I, I figured out that the best way for me to do that was to go for a Guinness World Record, to do something big so that I can yeah. impact a lot of children. So we did it during Mental Health Awareness Week in Canada. I got schools all over the country to participate. But when I returned to another one of the next training, I met a gentleman that lived in Switzerland and Spain. He had two homes and uh, I gave him a copy of the book and I was just asking everybody to participate. Please pass this on to children, help us get this Guinness World Record and bring awareness to mental health. And he said, okay, I'll pass it on. Um, <laughs> and he turned out to be really high up in the Nikon organization, which is a multi-level uh, marketing company. And so from there, the, CE, the CEO called me and they backed me up. They had, in the end, we had people in 29 different countries 
participate. And it was their own sales mm -hmm. team, their own people that were bringing me on for interviews, translating what I was saying, but everybody got behind um, this record and what we were doing. So that was really, really neat uh, just to see how doing something good can spread and can spread to so many places. So Miriam, I'm a little confused and I think Jack can also clarify this for me. We talked about when you, after you first attended one of Jack Canfield's events, that's when you came up with an idea to write a book, write a children's book. So why is this book later in the process if you've done the bully book already? Because this I Can book was supposed to be for this, right? Jack, you guys had this in mind all that time ago. Why did it take time to do this one compared to co-authoring a bully book and also other books you've written? Okay, very good question. So I'll explain that. I got home and I self-published the book. I was in a hurry and I did it all myself to publish the book. I self-published three books in the series, in the I Can series. And then for when I got the idea of the big bad bully, I wasn't in a hurry because when you go to a traditional publisher, it takes years to get your book out there. Um, when I wrote the big bad bully, I just knew I wanted something bigger. I wanted a traditional publisher and I contacted Jack. I sent him an email and I said, this is what I've learned from your classes. This is how it's affecting my children's lives. I really think we should co-author this together. And of course he's so good at writing. Can you edit it? And, and then he thought of adding exercises to the back of the big bad bully. That was our first book together that came out in 2019. And our publisher now has picked up my other books. So I Can Believe in Myself has been completely redone and now with a traditional publisher and with Jack's insights in the book. Oh, that's great. Okay. That was, uh, I just needed to figure that story out because I said, wow, yeah. you had it in mind. You accomplished all these things, then co-authored this book this time compared to already doing the, the Big Bad Bully. All right. Go ahead, Eric, with your next question. So Jack, question for you. When you, know, when you, when you first wrote the first Chicken Soup where did the progression come to come up with the other, you know, different soups for the different areas? That's a great question. So what happened was the first book we wrote, I thought we were writing one book in and out. <laughs> and um, what happened was, if you know anything about printing, what happens is they print things in folios, usually like 16 pages. They print them all and they fold them up and then you get... And if the book doesn't take up all those pages at the end, you get some blank pages. Now, mostly you'll see advertisements for the next book, for somebody's coaching program in the back of a nonfiction book, whatever. But at that time, our publisher called me and he said, Jack, I've got three empty pages in the back of the book. Do you want to write anything? Do you want to promote anything? And he said, you got an hour because we're going to press in an hour. <laughs> you got an hour. So I quickly penned the paragraphs. It said, a big title, more chicken soup, question mark. I said, if you have a story, a true story, a poem, something that would be inspirational, like the stories in this book, uh, please send them. Here's the address, you know, box 308 or whatever it was. Right, right. And what happened was when the book came out, we started getting 10, 15, 20, 50, eventually 100 stories a day. They were bringing <laughs> a day. Big like banker's boxes. You've seen these post office sometimes they have, and it would deliver two or three of them to our, our door, you know, for my company. And I had to hire two younger women to come in and just read, open all the mail, read all the stories, decide if they were worthy or not. The good ones, then Mark and I would read. And uh, so then that turned into a second helping of chicken soup, a third serving, a fourth course, a fifth bowl, a sixth pot, 
And then uh, what happened was uh, this woman named Marcy Shimoff, who was one of my students, called me and said, you should do a book called Chicken Soup for the Woman's Soul. First time a theme. I said, yeah. that's a great idea. Thank you. And I started to hang up. And she said, wait a minute. And I said, what? She <laughs> said, you should co-author it with me. And I said, why would I do that? She said, two reasons. Number one, it was my idea. And number two, I'm a woman. It'll have more credibility. <laughs> so she was right, of course. So we published Chicken Soup for the Women's Soul. And then that started to happen. A, a veterinarian contacted us and said, you should do Chicken Soup for the Pet Lover Soul. And I'm thinking, that's stupid. And then he said, do you know there's three pets for every human being in America? For every human being, there's three pets, three animals. Oh, my God. Okay, you just enrolled me. So we did chicken soup for the pellet. So I think we sold 6.5 million copies of that book the first year. And then it turned into uh, baseball fan soul, you know, a romantic soul, and what we call golden soul for people over 60. And it was just kept niching out. And then eventually people started approaching us saying, by the way, I'm a big basketball writer and you should yeah. do basketball fan soul. And so it just kept morphing out. I used to teasingly say, when you see chicken soup for the Rhode Island soul, you know we're, we're getting down to the bottom of the barrel of good ideas. <laughs> but but it just kept it just kept evolving to this day. And now what's happening is there are people in India contacted us and said, let's do chicken soup for the Indian soul, like the country India. So we have chicken soup for the Indian oh, woman wow. soul, chicken soup for the Indian cricket fan soul, chicken, you know, and it's just like it just keeps unfolding. Keeps going and going and going. Now, I want to go back to Miriam's story because that's great how we're going back and forth to different stories and see, right. again, I can. It's happening. Jack had an I can all the way to Chicken Soup for the Soul. Then, again, a speaking company and all the success later on. I got to watch Jack's documentary that's on Amazon and also watched him in The Secret. So those two areas really gave me an education on him. Hi. I knew him about the book, but till I watched those two things, so I recommend everyone check those out because they really show uh, how Jack never gives up. And I like you, Jack, because you're a former teacher. That's definitely gives me motivation to say, hey, Someday I can get to that level because when we are teachers, we learn to speak in front of people and it helps us so well to go and speak in front of anyone. And that's what Jack Hat does all the time. Now, Miriam, you left that the event, you wrote the children's book, but what ways did you kind of transform your life through Jack's teachings to going into, you know, writing more books and then also really making it a business? We want to hear about that. Yes. So at first the, I published the books and I started going into schools. So I would go in and do workshops with the kids. So they'd invite me in, I'd go in, read the story. And then I always wanted there to be um, a teaching moment. So the whole thing with, when I wrote the first draft of I Can Believe in Myself, it took me a long time to come up with Shreddy. I don't know if you've come, if you've read the story, but Shreddy is, um, is a paper shredder, which the girl in the story decorates as her show and tell. So the story is that this little girl has been chosen as the star of the day. She has to get up in front of the class and speak and she believes she can't do it. Uh oh. So through the story, she sees that her friends are also saying I can't. And at that moment she couldn't speak because she has made up a, a little, you know, a little lie that she has a sore throat. That's why she can't speak in front of the class. And she sees her friends saying, I can't tie my shoelaces. I can't do the monkey bars. And she starts realizing that that word is stopping them from doing it. So she decides she's going to get up and speak in front of the class. And she, she decorates a paper shredder, which she calls shreddy. And the whole idea is she gets up and she writes, 
um, I can't speak in front of the class and she shreds it. So we see mm. it disappear. And I just, yeah. I want, I wanted a visual when I went to schools for children to write their own I can'ts, mm-hmm. bring them up when I was there with them and then we would shred it together. And now we're letting that can't go, it's gone. And now start saying, I can do it. So there's, that's one exercise. Um, that's, that's the exercise in the book. But at the back of the book, J- Jack has written several exercises that kids can do to let go of the word can't. One of them, um, Jack, why don't you share that one? And then I'll, I'll answer your question a little bit more, Neil. Sure. There's there's a number of things we have them do. We have them make affirmations. Think of all the things on your list where you can't do it and then reverse it to I can do it and then make an affirmation and then repeat that affirmation, have them on cards, put them on your desk, put them on your mirror at home, things like that. We also give a teacher's option and parents like, you know, you could take your kids uh, you know, you mentioned you have six children. I don't know what age they are, but you can do a family ritual where everyone writes down their I can'ts. You take them out and you bury them in the backyard. You read a, a eulogy. You know, here lies our friend I can't, you know. He's yeah. in many places in the world, including our nation's capital and all the government places, et cetera. But he dies today. He's survived by his cousins. I will, I can, and, you know, things like that. So you can have a lot of fun with it. Um, we we have a number of different, different exercises. Like I'm trying to remember what the other one is. Oh, we have a thing called the I can card where teachers can give the kids a card and say, I can. Now you have to bring it to school every day and put it on your desk. And the idea is you can actually do that for a whole semester because most kids lose everything. And uh, basically (laughs) it's a goal that shows them when they have intention, they can actually do anything they want. And so that's a a, a powerful exercise as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that. And we have a book like my 100 ways to enhance self-concept in the classroom I have a curriculum self-esteem in the classroom that parents and teachers can get but there's a lot of activities like that that are that are available but finish your story Miriam mm-hmm. so Neil that that was very important for me for yes. to be able to yeah. change children's lives just with with an example with a tangible something that they could do so I started by going to schools I did a lot of school visits over many many years and over the last year and a half, my new I can is that I can teach aspiring children's book authors That's to true. write their own motivational stories and publish those. So I've been mentoring aspiring authors to do that. And that's been, I, I love every moment of that because it's yeah. children teaching them that they can. And now it's adults that exactly. have a dream of publishing their books, but they don't know how to do it. And you know what they're thinking. I can't do it. I can't write. I didn't go to school for this. You know, I can't put myself out there. I can't get up and speak. So it's changing. I can't to I can for everybody. That That's what really inspires me. So you're living that's that greatness, mission, that mission that you learned from Jack and living it throughout in the children's book world and in your life with your kids too. So that's fantastic. Right. Yes, absolutely. All right, Eric, next question. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. I just want to make sure we weren't having technical issues again. Um, So in regard to this, you know, one thing that I think is huge that obviously, Jack, you've been a a major mentor to Miriam. Um, Who have been your mentors that helped you uh, get started and, and kind of take action at times? 
Well, I've had a number of them. Uh, I would say my first one was when I was uh, in college. I had a history professor kind of take me under his wing and believe in me. I think it was just being believed in was so important. Yeah. Told me I could do anything. And uh, I, I, I believed him. And then I took a class my senior year. I was a Chinese history major, believe it or not, in college. Thought I was going to go into the State Department. But what happened was I became, I took a, an elective class for an easy A. I said to my counsel, I need an easy A. I don't want to work yeah, yeah. my last semester. And so I took this course called Social Relations 10. It was a psychology course. It was really like an encounter group. We just sat around and talked about our feelings, talked about our goals. A lot of things we talk about today and, and work that I do. And I went, I want to grow up and do this. So then I was able to go to the University of Chicago, taught, taught school for a while, was able to start integrating that into my classroom. And then I met W. Clement Stone, who I mentioned, who yeah. was uh, worth $600 million. And I worked for his foundation, teaching teachers. Uh, I can, you know, we, we call it the achievement motivation program. How do you motivate people to believe they can achieve things, to set yeah. goals? to do affirmations, to do visualization, to take action, to have a mastermind group, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he was my major mentor for several years. And then I went back to graduate school to get a doctorate. I had several professors there that were incredible. One was a guy named Sidney Simon, who was a values clarification expert who taught me about values and also just put his arm around me and said, you're special, you can do it. And he helped me yeah. get my first book contract. I wrote my first book while I was still a doctoral student, The 100 Ways in the, in the, in the, to self, Enhance Self-Esteem in the Classroom. And then I would say, I, I, I went to Jesse Jackson's church in Chicago for a number of years when I lived there. Oh, wow. And while Jesse and I were not friends really close, I didn't meet him, but going to his church every Sunday and watching how he would motivate the black masses in Chicago, they had Operation Bootstrap, which is pull, you know, if the white man's not going to lift you up, you have to pull your own bootstraps up. Right. And I took all that in, you know, that, that it was applied to me as well. And so the idea, I can do it. We can be entrepreneurs. We can be successful. Uh, that was an important mentorship for me. And then I think I moved from mentors into mastermind groups and yeah. just having five or six people working together you know i had a my first mastermind group i had a guy that was an editor at playboy he was the editor of playboy magazine not because i was interested in that content but i wanted someone that knew the writing world and he did right another guy in my mastermind group was a chiropractor who knew all about holistic health another person was someone who was consulting with american express so i was learning about business and and distribution and marketing and so basically they became more peers than they were mentors yeah uh, the, the, to this day, I always am in like three or four different mastermind groups like that. So because we got to be learning, right? We yeah. got to be asking questions. It's got to be. You know, I don't know if it was Bob Dylan or someone said, you know, you're busy growing or you're busy dying. Right. And me, you know, my my greatest happiness. And we did. I did something called the Passion Test a, a year ago with a, a couple years ago with Janet Atwood, and she wrote a book about it. And my number one passion is being with conscious people, learning from them, and then finding out what I can take back and teach to my students. And when right. I'm doing that, either side of that, being the learner or being the teacher, I'm a hundred percent dialed into what I'm about. So my life purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in a context of love and joy. 
And so anything I can learn to help me do that, whether it was NLP or EFT tapping or guided visualization or meditation, I'm the first one to want to learn it and then turn around and teach it. See, that's yeah. the important thing is you learn from others and then you teach it. As a teacher, Jack, that's what you do. And like I'm learning it even today and just wanting to learn more and more with some of the things I'm gathering off of platform uh, that Eric and I are both on now Clubhouse where we are yeah. getting huge nuggets from people and learning as much Constantly. as for everybody and then going and hopefully implementing them. And uh, for me, my, teaching my clients these yeah. And that's the the process. And as a teacher, I just go and, okay, I'll take this information. I'll see it. I'll regurgitate it and say, okay, let's go. And Miriam, you were the best student. There you go. You listen, learn from Jack and you, and you said, I can. And that's, I think the very important thing. And so in this process, how do you keep yourself, Miriam, from not saying, ah, having that, what if I, maybe I shouldn't try this. Maybe I shouldn't do this. How do you keep yourself from not doing that and keep moving forward to continue to expand what you do. It's very, it's very easy. I have four sets of eyes that are watching everything that I do. And <laughs> that that's my biggest motivator, truly. You know, it started off wanting to make a difference in their lives. My oldest was um, maybe nine at the time. She's now 17 going off to university in September. Right. My youngest is eight. And I just know that my time with them is limited yeah. So this pandemic being at home with them, like there's nothing I'm going to complain about. I have a little bit more time with them. So, you know, my oldest two are are girls. And so they're 15 and 17. And I want them to see a strong woman that believes in herself, that can yeah. be a good mom. And I had this limiting belief for a long time that I couldn't be a good mom and be there for my kids and have a business. So through those seminars, through learning, through growing myself, I now want to show them that, yes, you can be a mom, you can be a wife, and you can have a career or a business and do all of that. And I don't want to be telling them because that doesn't work with teenagers. I just want them to see it. And, and, and I think that's going to be the biggest impact that I can have for them. So Absolutely. I continue to learn. I continue to learn and put myself in those rooms, masterminds. I'm in several masterminds, one of them Jack's. I'm in other masterminds because, well, we all need that community for one to True. learn from each other. And then it's, it's a bit of socializing also, but right. you're learning as you're having fun. And I think if we continue to grow, I think that's what brings happiness in the end for me anyways. Yeah. Yes. And that's what my mentor teach, taught me, uh, G.J. Reynolds, who's a co-owner of Women in Faith. And I learned, met him at Vaisalas and his, from his book, is surround yourself with the right people. you got to surround yourself with the right people. And through those right people, they will lead you to the next opportunity in the best situation. If we're surrounding ourselves with people that bring us down, don't get us excited every day, and we don't learn from them then we're not with the right people. And that's that's what Jack teaches with his mastermind. And that's what Miriam's learning from masterminds as well. Okay, go ahead, Eric, next question. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that, that really stood out with, you know, what I'm hearing today and what we're talking about and just one of our beliefs is, is exactly what Neil's saying, right? You, you've got to surround yourself with people who are being positive that believe in, and sometimes that's the person that's ahead of you, but sometimes it's the person that's behind you. You know, it's, you know, sometimes it's the young ones. That's like you said, Miriam, I got four eyes watching me, right. Or four sets of eyes watching. me. Um, 
Sometimes it's that mentor who's who's taken a step ahead of you, like Jack's been. Um, but I think for all of us, it's realizing that every one of us can be an encourager. Every one of us can be a mentor, just like just like Shreddy, right? You can, you know, you can look around and see, man, I'm not the only one who's struggling here. And, you know, if, if we can take these I can'ts and just shred them, and you know what? Any of us can do that. You don't have to have a you don't have to have a PhD. But but it, it's Jack, it's it's been helpful, right? Because it's it's allowed people to go, well, you know, it's it's yeah, he's got that. So we all want to we all want to keep pressing and keep going. But just because you don't have the PhD or if you haven't written, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 books, you know, you can still be an encourager and a mentor and a and a and a I can person. So, um, you know, tell us kind of what's what's uh we're going to talk through a handful more things, but I'd love to hear kind of what's your, what's on the horizon um, that, that each of you see kind of personally and, and uh, where you would like to uh, maybe a project you'd like to work on. Well, for me, what's on the horizon, uh, you know, Mary and I are going to do some more books together. That's, that's coming yeah. up. Uh, I'm working on a couple books by myself. One's about choosing love over fear in your life which I think is really important right now in the world we live in. Yeah. Uh, I'm writing a book called Living the Success Principles, which is 101 stories of people who either read the success principles or came to a workshop like Miriam did, and the extraordinary success that they had. Ordinary people that have accomplished extraordinary things. Yeah. You know, the, what made chicken soup so relevant to people is these were ordinary people who were taking risks, overcoming obstacles, learning right. to love more, whatever it might be, the kind of thing you go, wow, if they can do it, I can do it. So that's a huge thing that I want to continue doing. Uh, we've got a training program. Uh, Miriam mentioned that we train trainers to teach our work. We've now got about oh, close to 4,000 certified trainers uh, in 117 countries teaching the success principles. Yeah. My goal is to have a million people by the year 2030. Um, so right now, the next step is to train trainers of trainers so that people like Miriam can turn around and certify other trainings, trainers right. and to identify leaders in different countries like China and Europe and Japan and so forth. I was just talking to a guy in Japan last night about him becoming that person for Japan. And so ultimately building up a worldwide organization. And um, that's that's really huge for me. And then uh, I would say the other thing is just continuing to stay alive. You know, I'm 76. So I'm focused on health and longevity and exercise and meditation and rest and eating the right foods and all that good stuff. So, um, but I would say the training, the train, leaving a legacy, the books are there, they'll be there, but having other people that are teaching other people that are teaching other people that are teaching other people. I believe all this stuff should be taught in schools. There should be a course called life skills that most people never learned. I was a history teacher. Nobody ever got divorced because they didn't learn the five exports of Argentina or the three causes of the Civil War. They got divorced because they never learned how to, <laughs> how to get along, how to solve problems. Right. right. Person in the first place. So kids need to learn how to manage their emotions, manage money, manage their uh, thoughts and so forth. So that's 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 where I'm headed. So Miriam, can you add to it for your where you're headed? Yes, of course. There are always a lot of plans and I, I love to 
to be busy and to, like I said before, be, be an example. So um, for me, we continue to write books. This book is being released um, in February. And uh, a big part of my business this year is teaching aspiring authors how to write, publish, and market their books. We have um, Jack and I co-host uh, co a webinar where we teach people some of the fundamentals in doing that. But I continue to do that. I have a mastermind group where I mentor these authors to be able to publish their own books. But a big thing that I'm doing this year is uh, I've partnered with Pencils of Promise. I don't know if you've heard of the organization. They build schools in different countries in the world and 